Amen. Freed from all of our sin and sorrow. Praise the Lord. I pray that's true for you today. But the good news is, if it's not, today's the day of salvation. Today is the day. Our sermon text is 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. Begin at verse 5. We'll read through verse 11. 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses 5 to 11. It's so good to see everybody today. What a great day. What a great day. The, the solo lessons, man, haven't they been good? Yes, our, they do, it do cause, does cause our hearts to beat with great joy, Ty. Amen. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins." Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, give us ears to hear. Your word preached and hearts to embrace its truth in obedience. Please, Father, make the Christians here more like Jesus. Give the non-Christians new life. All for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Last Sunday, if you were with us, uh, from verses 3 and 4, we saw the abundant sufficiency of our salvation. And it was such beautiful truths. We've got to hit it again real quick here in our review for those that may not have been here. This will be very brief, but we considered... These five points last week regarding our salvation. From verse 3, we saw that it's founded on the sovereign nature of God's call. Our salvation has its beginning before we were even conceived, before we were born. It had its beginning in eternity past when our merciful God graciously set his steadfast love and loyal love upon us. Secondly, our salvation results in the undeserved grace of God's deliverance. We see that in verse 4. Because of God's unmerited kindness, He has granted us escape from the deadly clutches of the Satan-run world system. Third, this great salvation that God has given us initiates an undivided union with God's nature. As Peter words it in verse 4, we, we become partakers of God's 
holy, divine, Trinitarian nature. We are adopted by God the Father. We are united with God the Son. And we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Partakers of God's nature. Fourth, we saw that this salvation is strengthened by the unbreakable promises of God's Word. Sola Scriptura. God's great and precious promises strengthen our faith and cause our trust in Him to increase day by day and moment by moment as we are sanctified by the Word of God. And then finally, in verse 3, we saw that our salvation is sustained by the unending provision of God's power. His divine power not only saves us, but it keeps us, granting us everything we need to live a godly life. In other words, when it comes to the Christian salvation, when it comes to the amazing, undeserved gift of faith, God planned it, God made it happen at a certain point in time. He opened our heart to believe the message, just like he did Lydia in Acts 16. He brought us into union with Jesus, and we partake of the divine nature, and he provides the power we need to live the life we were saved to live. He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, beginning with new birth and continuing with the sustaining power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, is that good news or what? If that doesn't bless your heart, then you need a new heart. You just need the heart of stone to be removed and replaced by the heart of flesh. Simply put, from our study last week, There is no salvation without God. There is no salvation without God. That is the overwhelming testimony of the Scripture. You're not going to save yourself. There is no salvation without God. Examples, Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. From the belly of of the great fish, the prophet declared, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Psalm 3.8, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Psalm 37, verse 39, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. Isaiah 43.11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. There is no Savior besides the Lord. Hosea 13, 4, but I am the Lord, your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me, there is no Savior. Revelation chapter 7, the Apostle John gives us this beautiful glimpse into the glories of of heaven. In chapter 7, beginning at verse 9, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. So from beginning of the scriptures to the end, the constant theme, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then note the response to this truth. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Amen. This is true. Salvation belongs to God. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Today, we're going to be see the flip side of this salvation coin. Last week, we saw that salvation is all of God. This morning, we will see the response of those whom he saves. Last week, we saw the root of our salvation. Today, we will see its fruit. Last week, we pondered the wonder of our salvation in its absolute sufficiency. Today, we will consider the working out of our salvation and how that confirms our election. Don't you love the Bible? Don't you love the Bible? So, what are the qualities of the diligent believer? Title of the message is the diligent believer, and I get that from the wording in verse 5. Verse 5 begins, for this very reason, make every effort. Make every effort is also translated in other uh, worthy translations, applying all diligence. Applying all diligence. Thus the title of today's message, the diligent believer. The phrase implies several things. It implies uh, haste. In other words, we're not messing around. We're getting to it. We're not dilly-dallying. We're, we're getting with the program, okay? We're getting to work. It implies not only a haste, but an eagerness, a readiness to get started. And it also implies a determination, a pouring of ourselves into the work at hand. In other words, we're all in. We're all in this Christian, Christian stuff. We're in. We're in. Okay? It's the Romans 12 thing, right? We presented our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. We're in. Here we are. Here I am. Send me. Here I am. It's the Isaiah thing. Here, here I am. I'm yours. That's what the word implies. The diligent believer, listen, the diligent believer does not let go and let God, okay? He or she is not lounging in the spiritual lounge chair, just expecting things to happen without any effort on his or her part. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. This is beautiful. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. There, he starts with grace. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Okay? So he starts with grace. On the contrary, listen, 
Look what he says next. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now I call that verse, you know what I call that verse a grace and work sandwich. Okay? You got grace. Okay, he starts with grace. He slides in, I'm working hard. And then he ends with grace. So you got you got the bread, the bread is the grace, the meat there is working based on the grace that's been given you. Okay? So that's that's one of the that that the balance that we're talking about this morning is as clearly depicted there in that verse as anywhere in the Bible. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked hard. I worked harder than any of them. But it's like, it's like the Holy Spirit pricks Paul's heart and says, but it was not flesh. It was not me in the flesh. It was the grace of God that was with me. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, that describes it. That describes what we're going to be talking about this morning. That's the balance. As David Helm writes, it's a mistake to think that salvation by faith alone means that one's faith never needs to work. True faith sweats. We're saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. We talked about this in our membership class this morning. How are good works related to the gospel? In two ways. Number one, we are saved by good works, but not our own. We're saved by the good works, the perfect works of Jesus Christ in his life and death. But where good works, a second way good works is connected to the gospel is when we receive the gospel, good works result. Good works are the fruit of our faith, the evidence of true faith. So yes, works are connected to the gospel. Saved by faith alone, but not by faith that remains alone. It produces good, God-glorifying works. With me? I love this from Spurgeon. It is not man's effort that saves him. Amen. We agree a thousand percent. It is not man's effort that saves him. But on the other hand, grace saves no man to make him like a log of wood or a block of stone. (laughs) Spurgeon, praise the Lord. I can't wait to meet him in heaven. We don't become a log when we're saved or a block of stone. Grace makes man active. God has been diligently at work with you. Now you must diligently work together with him. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 8 through 10 is the classic text describing this dynamic that we're talking about, this balance. Okay? We've read this many times from this pulpit as a supporting text to many messages, okay? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. The faith is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. God gave you the gift of faith so you could believe in Jesus. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, okay? Not saved by works, saved by faith that's been given to us 
by God so that no one may boast. The very next verse, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There you have it. There you have it. Saved by faith alone, four good works that result from that faith that was a gift granted to us by gracious God, whom if, if he had left us alone, would have died and gone to hell. Titus 2, 11 and 12 is another one. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And our text today describes what that godly life will look like and the qualities it will, will be have, that it will have. Now note that as Peter begins this list in verse 5, faith is already there. Why? Well, it's obvious. That's what's been given to us. We don't supply that. The faith is the gift. Faith is already there. That's what God gives us to begin building our life that will honor him. God starts it by giving us the foundation. Our faith, which, as we've just read from Ephesians 2, is not our own doing. It's the gift of God. Chuck Swindle wrote, note that faith already is present. Faith is the foundation, the taproot of the Christian life. It means relying on what Peter has described as the provision and promises for spiritual growth. It means abandoning, abandoning ourselves to God. It's what we were talking about a while ago, the Romans 12 thing, presenting yourself. We're all in, abandoning ourselves to God, his will, his strength, and his wisdom. Now, one of my favorite texts of Scripture, which I've cited many times from this pulpit, is Philippians 2, 12 and 13. You're probably familiar with that. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my present, but, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Not work for your own Work out. Work out what's been given to you. Work out what's been put in you through the new birth. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then there, there's not a period there. There's a comma. For, which also means because, verse 13, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So why can we work out our salvation? Why can we supply these attributes that we're going to look at here in just a minute? Because God is working in us. Okay, it all comes back to God. Glory to God alone. That'll be my solo next week. I can't wait. Okay, I get to preach twice a mini sermon and a big sermon. Okay, God is working in us. Our response is we work out what He is working in us. So let's put last week and this week together. Okay, based on our knowledge of Philippians 2 12 and 13. Last week, verses 3 and 4 spoke of God's work in us, okay? Giving us all things pertaining to life and godliness, His divine power, okay? 
causing us to partake of the divine nature. So verses 3 and 4 correspond with Philippians 2.13. God working in us. His divine power working in us. And the text before us today, specifically verses 5 through 7, is the working out of our salvation. So today's message corresponds with Philippians 2.12, okay? Working out our salvation. You with me? You with me? Okay. So the diligent believer, point number one, is not passive. The diligent believer is not passive. We are working out our salvation. Okay. Second mark of the diligent believer, the diligent believer works to demonstrate his faith in verses five through seven. Here we see Peter's list of qualities that we should be supplying to the faith that God has given us. The external qualities that we should be working out from the internal working of God in our heart. Qualities that should be increasingly evident uh, in our reborn lives. Characteristics that show forth our faith. So let's, let's consider each one of these briefly. Okay, for this very reason, make every effort, in other words, we're not passive, we're not in the spiritual lounge chair, we're working, okay? Yet not I, as Paul said, but the grace of God with me, right? Don't forget the balance. We, we can work in the flesh, we, we want to work in the power of the Holy Spirit, walk by the Spirit, okay? So make every effort... This grace-infused, spirit-empowered effort to supplement your faith first with virtue. Virtue. Some translations say uh, moral excellence. The word means moral excellence. It's an inner fortitude and conviction to do the right thing. It's the desire and the ability... The desire begins on the inside that God gives you, and then he empowers you to work it out, the ability to do what is right in a given situation with the emphasis on the inner aspect. Now, why is that important? It's, it, because it's got to be here first before it results in an external action. In other words, let me try to explain it like this. The decision has already been made before the test comes. For example, your elders have already made the decision about the definition of marriage. Okay? Because we're basing that decision on what God has said. Marriage is between a man and a woman only. The decision's already been made. We don't have to pray about it or think about it. If a test should come or a challenge should come on that from some external force, maybe the government or something, no, no, the decision's already been made. Another one. We've already made the decision about gender issues. Male and female, he created them. That's the only two. 
That decision has been made. So you precious folks in the new members class, know who you're aligning yourself with, okay? See, these are easy decisions, though, in reality, because we're just going with what God said. We're just going with what he said. I really don't understand churches that make these hard deci- that make these out to be some kind of hard decisions. These really are easy decisions. And it involves the, the, will, the word implies a, a willingness to stand alone if necessary. And in this Reformation month, we all think, of course, of, of Martin Luther at the, at the Diet of Worms. Here I stand. To go against scripture and conscience is neither safe nor right. Here I stand, all alone. I can do no other. That's what this virtue is. Proverbs 10 9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely. Whoever walks in integrity in virtue walks securely. But he who makes his ways crooked will be found out ultimately. So we add virtue. Secondly, we add knowledge. To our virtue, we add knowledge. Man, we've already seen this as a key word in Peter's second letter. This is the t- third time we've seen this word in the first five verses of the letter. It involves both learning and applying what's been learned. John MacArthur writes, Knowledge refers to the divine truth that is the foundation of spiritual discernment and wisdom, the truth properly understood and applied. And as Proverbs teaches us, the beginning of this knowledge is what? Fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. The proper attitude, reverence, awe, honor toward God. Then we add to our knowledge, self-control, self-control. Now that, man, I'll, the, the perfection of this sometimes blows me away. This is the perfect quality to supply after knowledge. And we've talked about this a lot on Sunday morning because how often do Reformed people, after learning the great doctrines of grace, Go around without any grace, knocking people over with their newly learned truth. I was probably guilty of that. Um, Michael Horton calls it the cage phase. Every new reformed believer needs to be put in a cage for about a year until they, you know, not compromise their, the truth. That the, it's the right truth, okay? It's the only truth. I mean, there's not a right truth and a wrong truth. Truth is truth, right? We talked about that in this class today, too. Okay. Uh, self-control means we live a, a balanced life, not in a compromising way, but in a godly way. We speak the truth in love. Note the balance. See the balance in, that, in Ephesians 4.15? We're not afraid to speak the truth. We're not afraid to speak the truth. We're not afraid to proclaim that God chose his people before the foundation of the world to be his. God knows who his elect are. 
We're, we're not afraid to speak the truth. Like We're not afraid to sp- speak. We're dead in trespasses and sins. That there's none righteous, no, not one. These are the truths of Scripture. We're not afraid to speak that. But we strive, we're growing to strive to do it lovingly and graciously. Uh, another, we're quick to hear and slow to speak. Quick to hear, slow to speak. Note the balance again. We're not afraid to speak. We will speak. But we are more eager to listen first. May God help us grow in these areas. The self-controlled believer is the biblically balanced believer. And then there's steadfastness. Add to your self-controlled steadfastness. I love this word. I'm going to camp on this word. I love this word because I see that in so many of you precious people at RCC. The steadfastness, the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty, remaining strong in unwelcome toil and hardship. The Greek word is hupomone. Hupomone. It's difficult. It's a it's a multifaceted word. It's, it's difficult to express in one English word. But words like perseverance, stability, uh, confidence, strength in hardship, pressing on with eyes fixed on Jesus, staying the course no matter what, if the course is the right God-honoring one. Staying the course when you know it's right. Keeping on the straight and narrow when the world is encouraging the broad and easy way. Remaining clear-headed in the midst of distress or disaster. Walking on through the valley of the shadow of death. Never giving up. Never giving up. Never quitting. I have a little banner in my office at home, and it says that true commitment begins when we reach the point of not knowing how we can possibly go on and decide to do it anyway. Commentator William Barclay offers some helpful insight. He begins by quoting Cicero's definition of this Greek word. Cicero defines hupomone as the voluntary and daily suffering of hard and difficult things for the sake of honor and usefulness. He continues, hupomone does not simply accept and endure. There is always a forward look in it. Now that's important. Sometimes we just accept and endure in a giving up kind of way. Okay? But that's not the word. Hupomone does not do that. There is always a forward look at it. It is said of Jesus that for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. See the connection there? The endurance of the cross for the joy that would ultimately come from that. That's hupomone. 
That's Christian steadfastness. It is the courageous acceptance of everything that life can do to us and the transmuting of even the worst event into another step on the upward way. Got it? The upward way. No matter how bad it is. Because what does Romans 8 tell us? 28, 28, 29. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to, a purpose, to his purpose. And those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus. Now, that's why hard things can be looked at as the next step up because God is using them to make you like Jesus. Now, if, if, if we can buy into that, if we can buy into that, it'll make a big difference in how you live your life and how you look at life and how the attitude you have toward life. That eliminates the why me, Lord, why poor pitiful me. That eliminates the poor pitiful me mindset. Everything that life can do to us and the transmuting of even the worst event into another step on the upward way. May God help us to have that mindset. That's heavy duty. That's heavy duty, but that's, that's hupomone. That's the word. Steadfastness. What a great word. May God help us to supply it to our faith. May we be, as Paul said at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, no matter what. No matter what. Then we add to steadfastness, godliness, godliness, reverence for God, proper adoration of God, putting God in his proper place, the right attitude toward God. A.W. Tozer said that's the most important thing about a person. The most important thing about a person is what they think about God, their, their attitude toward God. This is where this quality begins. What we believe about God, what we think about God. And then that proper attitude results in the God-honoring behavior. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, yeah, that workout is, is good. That's a good thing. There's some value to that. The jolking, yeah, keep it up, you know, keep walking, keep running, keep jogging, keep lifting the weight. Yeah, that, that has some value, but godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Bob Utley gives us this very important reminder. He said this word describes not the exceptional, okay? This word isn't just to be applied to the uh, spiritual elite, you know, I mean, the elders, the pastors, the missionaries, okay? This word describes not the exceptional, but the expected, expected of every believer. And then we add to godliness brotherly affection. So flowing out of our vertical attitude toward God 
is the proper horizontal attitude toward others, especially the household of faith, the family of God, our spiritual brothers and sisters. And to the brotherly affection, we add love, the highest virtue of all. Consider one of Paul's lists in Colossians 3, beginning at verse 12. Put on then, in other words, supply. This is another list that he's basically doing the same thing Peter's doing. Okay, Peter said supply these things. Paul says put them on. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And then he says this, and above all, above all, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And that's what Peter's doing. He's crowning his list with the supreme quality, agape, the godlike love. Now, interesting note here for you Greek scholars, okay? In the Greek, there is the definite, definite article the before the word love. It doesn't come out in the English translation. But if you look at the Greek New Testament, there it is. The definite article there, the love, supply the love. Now, what do you think that is? What do you think Peter's referring to there? Well, we get to heaven, we can ask him and find out for sure. Let me give you my thought. The love, I believe he's referring to the love, because of the word agape, the love of God. The love of God. In other words, strive to love people like God loves them. The, oh, man, that, what a calling. What a, what a challenge. What an impossibility. Yes. And just like Jesus said, with man, this is impossible, right? With man, with, with just you, just me, impossible. But with God, we've been made partakers of the divine nature, right? With God, all things are possible. So supply to your faith the love of God. Consider with me Romans chapter 5, okay? Verses 1 to 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. The next step upward. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love, there it is, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All right, now, work with me. Don't leave me, okay? 
We're almost done. You hang with me, okay? And I really, I really mean don't, don't, I didn't see anybody sleeping. I told the membership class today, when you hear me say that, I've usually seen, seen somebody sleeping. But I didn't that time. I really want you to work with me, okay? I really want you to work with me. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that the love of God has been poured into our heart. Peter tells us here in 2 Peter 1 to supply it to our faith. So which is it? You know the answer. Both. It's both. We are to work out. We've come, we've come full, full circle from the introductory comments of the message. We are to work out what God has worked in us. We are to supply to our faith what God has poured into our hearts by the gift of faith. It's Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Don't you love the Bible? Don't you love God's Word, how unified it is? It's just beautiful. It's just beautiful. Supply to your faith the love of God that's been poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit who was given to you when God saved you. Isn't that beautiful? God's Word is so good. I just love preaching God's Word to you. I love that you're sitting there and enduring this and hanging in there with me and working hard. God's word is so beautiful. Well, real quick, number three, the diligent believer lives an effective and fruitful life. Verse eight, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, nobody's arrived. We're not there yet. Nobody's arrived. They're increasing. We're growing. We're being sanctified. We're becoming more and more like Jesus are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. So we want the opposite of that, right? We want to be effective and fruitful. Now, have you ever heard, have you ever heard a, uh, a professing believer in Christ say something like this? Have you ever heard this? I'm really content to be unfruitful. I'm really happy to be ineffective and useless. I'm just glad to be totally useless. I'm going to heaven. Jesus paid it all, and I'm content to do absolutely nothing to represent him and promote his gospel. Have you ever heard anybody say that? No, I never have either. But the key word is say. I've never heard anybody say that. And you probably haven't either. But do you know of professing believers who have demonstrated that with their lives? Well, start, what about you? What about you? Beloved, may we, be all, may we all be effective, fruitful believers who joyfully reflect Jesus and proclaim his gospel. Number four, the diligent believer never forgets the cross. Never forgets the cross. Look at verse nine. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed by his former sins. We say, Butch, the word cross isn't in that verse. Yeah, but where were you cleansed? What cleansed your sins? Yeah, you know it, the cross. Jesus died on the cross. The diligent believer never, never, ever forgets the cross. This is a warning. Verse 9 is a warning following what we just read in verse 8. Verse 9 is a warning to people who profess faith but are not demonstrating it. 
Peter is saying, have you forgotten what Jesus has done for you in cleansing your sins at the cross? In addition to forgetfulness of the wondrous grace and forgiveness of God, Peter says that these people are nearsighted, nearsighted. In other words, their focus is on what? The now. The now. They're not looking at the long term. They're not looking at the long-term plan of God. They're not setting their mind on things above. They're not living with an eternal perspective. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because they've forgotten their forgiveness. And that is what gets them into eternal glory. So if they've forgotten their forgiveness, they're not looking ahead to eternal glory. They've forgotten Jesus' payment at Calvary, so they do not live with an eternal perspective. If they continue in that mode, it may demonstrate that they were never saved. So if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that God's people have a history of being forgetful. So let's ask God, let's beg God for the grace that we wouldn't forget what he's done for us. And finally, the diligent believer, number five, is confident of his salvation and entrance into the kingdom, verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, they will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Now, we're going to pursue this further next Sunday, Lord willing. We're going to talk about assurance. So we're going to stop here. I'll leave you with a couple of quotes. R.C. Sproul. The most important question you need answered in your lifetime is this. Am I numbered among the elect? Most important question. And then Spurgeon says it like this. Let it not continue a subject of question with you. Am I the Lord's or am I not? Am I called by grace? Am I chosen by God or am I not? Make these things sure beyond all doubt. And I pray each of you will. And we'll pick up there next week, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for granting us faith. Thank you for getting us started on the life of honoring you. Help us supply to that faith, these virtues, these qualities that will bring glory to your name and encouragement to our fellow believers and to our community, to our families, to our loved ones. Grow us, Father, in the grace and knowledge of who you are. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for this time to come to the table and remember what you've done for us. May we not be forgetful of the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.